you will, take your Bibles now and turn over uh, to the book of Hebrews in the New Testament near the end. Hebrews chapter 2, and we'll begin reading in verse 10. Hebrews 2, 10. For it was fitting for him for whom are all things and through whom are all things in bringing many sons to glory to perfect the author of their salvation through sufferings. For both he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified are all from one Father, for which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren, saying, I will proclaim your name to my brethren. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children whom God has given me. Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is, the devil, and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. For assuredly, he does not give help to angels, but he gives help to the descendant of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brethren in all things, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For since he himself was tempted in that which he has suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. Father, we pray now that you would help us clear our minds to hear and understand your word, Uh, open my lips to speak it uh, clearly and with power from on high. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. I want us to meditate uh, this morning on the words, not ashamed, not ashamed. Those two biblical words will be familiar to many of us. Uh, We may have them memorized. We might see them sometimes on Christian t-shirts or on bumper stickers, uh, especially from Romans chapter 1, verse 16, where Paul writes famously, I am not ashamed of the gospel. Or along the same lines, we might think of Jesus' warning in Luke 9, 26, for whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his glory. And again, the emphasis is on how, as followers of Jesus, we should be not ashamed. Not ashamed of Jesus, not ashamed of his words, not ashamed of the gospel. And those are important exhortations, of course. There's a reason why those two words are familiar to many of us. But I want you to notice this morning that Hebrews 2.11 uses the same two English words, not ashamed, from a wholly different angle. Here we don't find an exhortation that we should be not ashamed of Jesus, but actually that he is not ashamed of us if we are his followers. For both he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified are all from one father, for which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren. 
Jesus is the he in verse 11. He is the one who sanctifies. And if you are among those who are sanctified, in other words, if you are among those who have been set apart for God, if you are among those who are becoming more like Jesus, however slowly you may feel it to happen, if you are a genuine Christian, in other words, Jesus is not ashamed to call you brother or sister. Both he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified are all from one Father, for which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren. Isn't that a wonderful realization? Wouldn't that be a good thing to put on your t-shirt or at least to scribble on a post-it note and stick to your bathroom mirror? Because when we look at ourselves in the mirror, we see many, many reasons why Jesus might well be ashamed of us, don't we? We are his brethren, of course. We are his brothers and his sisters. And yet, we know when we look in the mirror that we so often carry so little of the family resemblance. We're ragtag, aren't we? Covered with blemishes and soot, sometimes looking a lot more like street urchins than children of the king. In fact, we can look around at our culture and say, in our culture, if someone has a brother who has strayed so far from the family's values, even if he's recently turned a corner, sometimes folks are still a little bit ashamed to own him, aren't they? Ashamed to introduce him to their friends. Ashamed, perhaps, to bring him along to the company picnic. Or maybe even the church picnic. But not so with Jesus. Yes, he sees the stains on our collars and the grime on our cheeks. And I don't say that he's indifferent to those things. He's not. But those aren't the only things he sees when he looks at his brethren. He also sees that along with the blemishes and the soot, there is growth. If we are really his children, we are those who are sanctified. We're not as dirty as we once were. We've turned a corner, haven't we? And he's not ashamed to say, that's my brother. That's my sister. And he also looks at us and sees, as the verse says, that we are all from one. That's literally all that the Greek says there in that clause. Both he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified are all from one. The New American Standard Bible adds the word father in an attempt to help complete the thought. But the word father is not actually there in the original Greek. All that the original Greek says is that we are all from one. And it seems to me that the phrase all from one here in Hebrews 2.11 probably has less to do with being from one father as it does with being from one flesh. We are all from one flesh. We are all with Jesus from the same humanity. We are all from one human race. And it's for this reason, among others, that he is not ashamed to call us brethren. He's human like we are. Now it is true, of course, that both we and Jesus are all from one Father if we belong to him. Jesus, both in his eternal divinity and in his incarnate humanity, is the Son of God. And we too, by virtue of our having been born again by the Holy Spirit and adopted into the family of God, are children of God as well. So it's true that we and Jesus are all from one Father. But as I said, I don't think that's what the author of Hebrews is emphasizing here. 
because the larger passage that we read, verses 10 through 18, is really an exposition of Jesus' humanity. That's what this passage is emphasizing. It's a refresher course on the reasons Jesus took on flesh and blood, verse 14. This passage is an explication, verse 17, of why he had to be made like his brethren in all things. That's what the author of Hebrews is primarily dealing with us with in this passage that's before us today. Why Jesus became a man, why Christ became human, and how his incarnation benefits us, his fellow humans. And realizing that that's the main emphasis of the passage at large, Jesus sharing in our flesh and blood, it seems to me that that's also likely what the author has in mind when he says in verse 11 that both Jesus and his people are all from one. We are all from one human race. We are all from one flesh and blood. And it's for this reason, at the end of the verse, that he is not ashamed to call us brethren. Jesus looks at our humanity, our human foibles, our human failures, our human weaknesses. And though he did not join in our sin, he sympathizes with us because he joined with us in all the other ways that we are human. He, too, is fully human. He, by experience, knows our frame. And because he does, he's not ashamed to call us frail, fractured, struggling human beings his brothers and sisters. He has flesh and blood just like they do, verse 14. He has been tempted just like they are, verse 18. So the main thrust of this passage is to explain that Jesus took on flesh and why. To reinforce the fact of Jesus' humanity and then to demonstrate the upshots of that incarnation in the lives of his people. And the upshots of Jesus becoming human are many, aren't they? Because he shared in our flesh and blood, verse 14, he was able to die for us and render the devil powerless in our lives. Because he was made like his brethren in all things, verse 17 he was able to make propitiation for the sins of the people. And because, having been human, he was tempted, like his people are tempted, verse 18, he is able to sympathetically come to their aid. All of these are wonderful consequences of Jesus having become one of us, of Christ having taken on flesh and dwelt among us, of him having become fully human. But there is another upshot of Jesus' incarnation. Verse 11, in particular, gives us another consequence of the fact that Jesus has become man. And that's the one that's been particularly sweet to me recently. Verse 11 contains another magnificent outcome of Jesus becoming flesh and dwelling among us. Namely, that as our fellow man, he is not ashamed to call us brethren. This consolation, remember, is not for all of Jesus' fellow men, of course. It is, the verse defines, for those who are sanctified. But if we are among the sanctified, if we are among those who are becoming more like Jesus, if we are true Christians, we have the sure word here in the black and white of Hebrews 2.11, Jesus is not ashamed to call us brethren. You understand, of course, that the verse actually says he's not ashamed to call them brethren, speaking in the the third person. But if you are among the them, 
then you can say what I'm going to be saying this morning, inserting the word us in place of the word them, inserting the word me in place of the word them. He is not ashamed to call them brethren. That's what it says, but I'm among the them. He's not ashamed to call me brother. He's not ashamed to call you sister. He's not ashamed to call us brethren. And I think that's the way that I'll be saying it to you this morning, putting you right in to the passage. Jesus has the same flesh and blood as we do. Jesus knows our frame. We are all from one, and therefore he doesn't shrink back from owning us before his Father, from owning us before the angels, from owning us before the watching world, from owning us at the judgment seat. He's not ashamed of us. You are my brothers and sisters, he says, and I'm not ashamed of you. Yes, I see the same grit on your face that you see when you look in the mirror, but I am sanctifying you. You're not as gritty as you once were, and we share in the same flesh and blood, and I'm not ashamed to call you brother. I'm not ashamed to call you sister. And how often do we need to hear that? How often do we need to be reminded of Jesus' compassion toward us, his love of us, his acceptance toward us? How often do we need to tell ourselves and be told that Jesus will not disown his people? Both he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified are all from one father, for which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren. It's a marvelous assertion, isn't it? He is not ashamed to call them brethren. And what I want to do with the rest of our time is just to delve a little bit more deeply into those words, to massage them like ointment into the soul of every true believer who is listening to my voice. And the way that I want to do that is to take this one upshot of Jesus' incarnation, this one consequence of Jesus' incarnation, and use it as a lens through which to view some of the other blessings that are scattered like manna throughout these verses. There are many consequences that come from Jesus having become flesh. And I want to show them to you, some of them anyway, from these verses. And then I want alongside that to show you that there are embedded in these verses a number of reasons why we might expect Jesus to be ashamed of us. And then to demonstrate that having shared in our flesh and blood, he is in each of these areas, in fact, not ashamed to call us brethren. And I'll give you four of those areas. First of all, Jesus is not ashamed of us in our temptation. Jesus is not ashamed of us in our temptation. We are tempted sore, aren't we? Many times. Sometimes the most horrible thoughts come across our paths or across our minds. Sometimes we cannot believe that we're still so weak in the knees when it comes to what we see on the magazine rack or how we're tempted to respond to criticism or how food or money or television can dominate our lives. We're so tempted in so many ways, aren't we? And the fact that we're so prone to temptation can be a source of shame, can't it? I can't believe that I'm still susceptible to that. I can't believe that still bugs me. I'm so embarrassed that I even entertained that idea for more than a half a second. Even if we don't actually fall into the sin, the fact that we're so weak as even to be liable to the temptation can make us blush, can it not? 
And so in those moments of temptation or in the aftermath of them, we may also think that Jesus is blushing as well, that Jesus is embarrassed by us, that if he had been there, he would have just pretended like he didn't know us. But look at what we're told in verse 18. He himself was tempted. He himself was tempted. Without sin, we're told in chapter 4, but tempted nonetheless. He himself knows our frame. He knows what it is to be human, to live in a fallen world, to be tempted, and to have a difficult choice in choosing between right and wrong. Jesus knows those crossroads that we come to. He's been at them. In all the same ways that we come to them, he has been to them. And he doesn't abandon us for facing the same trials that he himself faced. Rather, he sympathizes with us. Isn't that what we read a couple of chapters over in chapter 4, verse 15? We do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are. And having been tempted like we are, I want to say to you that he is not ashamed to call us brethren even when we are tempted. That's not an excuse to give in, of course. It's just to say that Jesus doesn't disown his people because they struggle with sin's enticements. And not only does Jesus sympathize with his tempted brethren in chapter 4, and not only is he not ashamed of them in verse 11, but he also, because he has been in their shoes, verse 18, can help his tempted brethren. Isn't that what we read there? For since he himself was tempted in that which he has suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. Somehow, Jesus, having gone through the temptations of his own, made him even more equipped to help those who are tempted. How can that be, someone says? How can Jesus who is very God of very God, who doesn't need anything, somehow be more equipped to help us than he always was from eternity past. I'm not sure of exactly all the implications of that, but verse 10 says something similar. Verse 10 says that Jesus was somehow perfected by his sufferings. Not perfected in his morality, Of course, not perfected in his divinity as though God could be made more perfect. But in his humanity, somehow Jesus needed to suffer and be tempted in order to be the best possible merciful high priest and savior for his people. Somehow Jesus' own temptations made him even more suitable to sympathize with our weaknesses and to come to our aid when we are tempted and to be unashamed of us all the while. And so I say to you, Jesus sympathizes with you in your temptation. He can come to your aid in your temptation, and he is not ashamed to call them brethren, even in temptation. But then secondly, he's not ashamed to call them brethren in in their sin. He's not ashamed to call us brethren in our sin. Jesus owning of us, even when we are being tempted, is, as we said, no excuse for falling into sin. But the question then is, what if we do? Because we do, don't we? What happens then? Maybe Jesus is not ashamed of me as long as I'm tempted, but I don't fall into sin. But what happens when I fall in? What happens when I jump in? 
Maybe that's the point at which Jesus' cheeks blush. Maybe that's the point at which he begins to walk away whistling as though he doesn't know who we are. He has every right to do that, does he not? We might fathom that Jesus would be ashamed of us, or not be ashamed of us, I should say, when we're tempted. We might understand that because temptation is not the same as sin. Jesus himself was tempted after all. But it's harder to imagine Jesus walking arm in arm with us and still calling us brothers and sisters when we've not only glanced for a few moments into the cesspool, but actually fallen in headlong. Will Jesus still own us then when he's got to pull us out and scrub us clean once more? Can he possibly be unashamed of us even though we sin? Well, again, the answer to our question lies in Jesus' incarnation, in his humanity. Because of his incarnation, because Jesus became one of us, he need not be ashamed to call us brethren, even when we've fallen into sin. But the logic this time is different from the previous point. When we spoke of temptation, we said that Jesus' humanity is such a help because as a human, he was tempted too. So he can identify with our struggles and he's not ashamed of us. Having become human, Jesus can identify with all of our struggles. Well, all of our struggles except one, right? There's one struggle that Jesus cannot identify with. There's one pair of shoes that he cannot put himself in, and that is the shoes of our sin. Jesus doesn't identify with our sin, does he? He was fully human. He was made like us. He was tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. And yet I say that because he was fully human, because he was made like us, he is able to own us and not be ashamed to call us brothers and sisters even when we sin. How is that? How does the incarnation of Jesus enable him not to be ashamed to own us sinners? The answer this time is not that his incarnation enables him to sympathize with our weaknesses, but that his incarnation enabled him to die for our weaknesses. To die for our sins. Isn't that what we're told in verse 17? Therefore he had to be made like his brethren in all things, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. He had to be made like us, so that he could make propitiation for us. And what does it mean to make propitiation for the sins of the people? It means to die in their place, to absorb the penalty that their sins deserved, to absorb God's wrath against the sins of his people. That is propitiation, absorbing God's wrath for sin. And that's what Jesus did for us on the cross. And in order to do it, verse 17, he had to be made like us. He had to be made like his brethren in all things. He had to become human in order to die for our sins. And for two reasons. First of all, he had to come to earth as a human because he had to die. Jesus could not have come to earth as a spiritual being, which he was from eternity past, right? God is spirit. But had God come to earth only in that spirit form, it would have been impossible for him to die, would it not? So Jesus had to take on flesh and dwell among us. He had to be made like his brethren in all things. And not only did he have to take on flesh, but he had to take on human flesh as well. Not only 
human flesh, but human nature as a whole, in fact. He couldn't come as just any flesh. And he couldn't just come with a body. He had to come with a whole human nature. Because it was human beings who sinned. It was humanity who deserved to die, right? And therefore it had to be human blood that was shed for human sin. That's why he had to be made like his brethren in all things. He had to have human flesh and he had to have a human nature so that he might make propitiation for the sins of the people. And here's where we circle back around to verse 11. If Jesus has made propitiation for our sins, if we are among God's people, and if our sins have therefore truly been atoned for by his blood, then Jesus has no reason to keep his distance from us, does he? No reason to be ashamed to call us his brothers and his sisters because in God's sight, our sins are no more. They've been paid in full. They've been covered by the blood of Jesus so that while our sins ongoing, yes, certainly disappoint Jesus and while our sins sometimes draw the discipline of our Heavenly Father, they don't separate us from Him. They no longer throw up a wall between us and the Lord and Jesus has no reason to be ashamed to own us. Yes, these are my brothers. I know they fail often and we're at work on that. We're remedying that. But I've redeemed them. I've paid their debt. They're no longer guilty in God's courtroom. And so I don't mind to tell you that they belong with me. And not only that, but remember Jesus could also say from verse 10, and not only are there debts paid in full, excuse me, verse 11, not only are their debts paid in full, but their lives are changing as well. They're not what they once were. They are being sanctified. They're looking more and more like me all the time. Don't you agree, he could say? And in the light of those changes, I'm not ashamed to call them my brothers. I'm not ashamed to call them my sisters. I'm actually quite pleased with their progress, with the progress that I am making in their lives. I said that Jesus doesn't identify with our sin because he never committed it. But on the cross, he did identify with our sin, didn't he? On the cross, he did take our sin upon himself and die so that we are no longer guilty before God and that he no longer has to be ashamed to call us brethren. Jesus doesn't like our sin. Jesus doesn't wink at our sin. Sometimes his heavenly father disciplines us, perhaps even severely for it, to teach us to grow beyond it. But in the midst of Jesus not liking our sin, in the midst of the disappointment or the discipline that may come from our Heavenly Father, He still loves us dearly. Jesus still sees God's work in our lives. He still sees His blood covering all our sins. And He is not ashamed to call us brethren. And He's not ashamed to call us brethren, not only in our temptation and in our sin, but thirdly, He's not ashamed to call us brethren in our fears. In our fears. Verse 15 reminds us that one of Satan's greatest weapons against us is fear. 
Sometimes it may be the fear of death that's mentioned here. Sometimes it may be other fears, but the devil has a way many times of getting us over a barrel, doesn't he? Racked with fear. And fear can be all-consuming. It can control our lives and steal from us our time and our joy and our hope and many other things. It often settles most on older people and on children, but the rest of us in between are not immune to great fear, are we? Sometimes we may look at a fearful person and say to them, come on now, snap out of it. Get a hold of yourself. What are you so afraid of? Get a grip. You're being ridiculous. You're imagining things that aren't there. All that may be true. We may be right. And we may grow tired of a person who's struggling greatly with fear or even a little bit embarrassed by all the seemingly irrational things that they do. But Jesus understands the devil's games. And far from being impatient with or embarrassed by the fearful, we're told in verse 14 that since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. This is mainly, again, talking about those who are afraid of death and hell. But Jesus became a man so that he might deal with the devil and deal with our fear. So that he might, by his death, render powerless that great fear monger called Satan. Do you know, incidentally, that the devil is ultimately powerless against those for whom Christ died? That's what the verse says, isn't it? Through death, he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. If you're in Christ, the devil is ultimately powerless against you. Not because of you, but because of Christ. Now he still prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour, but the lion has been put on an unbreakable leash. He can only go so far. Yes, he can still, as he did with Simon Peter, sift God's people like wheat. But in doing so, he unwittingly does them good. He means to shake them up so that they'll be blown away like chaff. But in God's Romans 8.28 economy, Satan's sifting of God's people actually just makes the kernels of wheat all the more free of the entanglements. Jesus has rendered the devil powerless. Jesus has put the devil in a position where unwittingly he means it for evil, but God works all of his junk for good. He cannot overthrow you if you are in Christ. And all of this, we're told, is somehow related to the incarnation, related to Jesus becoming flesh, and related to the cross. Since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is, the devil. And the result of Satan's powerless is that, in verse 15, we no longer need to be afraid. And yet, sometimes we still are, aren't we? Though the devil has no power over us, sometimes we think that he does, and sometimes we are terribly afraid. But he who loved us enough to come and die to rescue us from the devil and from fear 
surely still loves us even when we struggle with it. Don't you think? Even though we are a fearful people, he is not ashamed to call us brethren. And then finally, notice that Jesus is not ashamed to call us brethren in our suffering. In our suffering. If you read the book of Hebrews, you will get the strong impression that the Christians to whom this letter was originally addressed were feeling marginalized and were suffering a little bit for their faith. So compared to the large, organized Jewish religion that they had left to follow Christ, these people were a little bit ragtag, perhaps. They had no more temple. They had no more priest. They had no more ceremonies. And chapter 12 indicates that not only were they sort of a small, marginalized group of people, but they were also facing hostility. Maybe it was in official ways from the government or from the Jewish leaders. Maybe it was just in economic terms. People wouldn't shop at their stores anymore. Maybe it was within their own families. But they were facing hostility and they were marginalized. They felt like they were just on the edges of society. And so it has often been for Christians the world over. In most places in the world, to be a Christian is to live on the fringes of things. To suffer difficulty, to be a bit ragtag societally. But listen to what verse 10 says about the leader of this ragged crew. For it was fitting for him, for whom are all things and through whom are all things, and bringing many sons to glory to perfect the author of their salvation through sufferings. Through sufferings. Isn't that an interesting sentence? He talks about God, for whom are all things and through whom are all things, and Him bringing many sons to glory. It's a triumphant kind of verse, isn't it? But then it says the way He brings many sons to glory is to perfect the author of their salvation through sufferings. It was fitting that Jesus would save His people through sufferings. And it was fitting for a number of reasons. Not least because, as we've said, it was only by his suffering that our sins could be propitiated, forgiven, atoned for. But I wonder if the author of Hebrews isn't with this phrase, it is fitting. I wonder if he isn't hinting to the struggling Hebrew Christians that Jesus' suffering was fitting because he is the Lord of a suffering people. It was fitting for him to bring many sons to glory by means of suffering because not only would his suffering atone for their sins, but his suffering would also acquaint them with him with their sorrows. Not only would his suffering atone for their sins, but it would acquaint him with their sorrows. It was fitting that a suffering people should have a suffering Savior. Many kings might be embarrassed by such people as the early Christians. Many kings might be embarrassed if their subjects were a motley crew of marginalized, socially unimportant, poor, suffering, common folks who were not generally acceptable in polite society and many of whom were slaves. What king would choose that group to be the ones to march behind his banner? But that's what the early Christians were. And that's what many Christians in the world are today. Nobody's culturally. 
People who struggle, people who suffer, sometimes for their faith, sometimes just with the regular trials of life. And many kings, I say, might be embarrassed by such a constituency, but not the king who was born to a poor, young, unmarried couple and laid in a manger. Not the king who worked his whole life in a wood shop. He's not embarrassed by those kind of people. Not the king who was ostracized by the religious elite. Not the king with nail prints in his hands and feet. It was fitting that this kind of people have this kind of king. One who, as the hymn writer says, knows all about our troubles. It was fitting that he bring them to glory. Not by military conquest. Not by great political acumen. Not by great maneuverability in culture, but it was fitting that he bring them to glory through sufferings. For having suffered himself, having been on the margins himself, having been poor himself, having been outside the camp himself, he is not ashamed to call them brethren who come from exactly the same shoots or who end up in those shoots because of their decision to follow him. Now, we're not suffering like the early church was suffering by any stretch. And we're not suffering like many of our brothers and sisters in the world are suffering. But we are, relatively speaking, in the world at large, fairly small and fairly insignificant, aren't we? I hope I don't offend you by saying that. I say it about myself. I look out at our crew this morning. I look in the mirror and I say, Paul is right. There aren't many mighty are many noble among God's people. We're just average folks, most of us. And comparatively, there are only a handful of us, really. And I know what it is to see someone's condescending smile as if to say, of course there are only a handful of you with your ancient beliefs and your simple backward ways of doing things. But Jesus is not ashamed of his little flock of ordinary people here in Pleasant Ridge. He's not ashamed of his little flocks that are meeting secretly today in apartments in China. He's not ashamed of his little flocks in Ethiopia meeting in ramshackle buildings made from scrap pieces of corrugated metal just stuck together in all sorts of angles to make a building. He's not ashamed to call them brethren because he has suffered too. He's been treated like a nobody too. He's been looked down upon too. He's gone outside the camp too. Here's another way in which the Lord of glory identifies with his people. Another way in which they are all from one in their suffering. Both he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified are all from one, we're told. For which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren. What a good word. Verse 11 is when we are tempted. What a good word when we fall. What a powerful word when Satan has us over the barrel of fear. And what a sweet word when we are struggling and small. He is not ashamed to call them brethren.